You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. In 1974, Richard Nixon sent his Treasury Secretary, William Simon, to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia to negotiate a deal which, simply put, was vital to both America's economic prosperity and also to curtail the advance of the Soviet Union into the Middle East. The deal on offer was a simple one, but the ramifications would ripple through the world and shape the post-Bretton Woods order from that day to this. Simon was charged with offering the Saudis military aid and equipment as well as an implicit security guarantee. In return, America wanted one thing, for the Saudis to price their oil exports exclusively in US dollars. Striking that agreement would mean that not only would the Saudis be recycling hundreds of billions of dollars from their oil sales into US treasuries, but also that every net importer of oil in the world would need to hold billions in US treasuries as dollar reserves of their own, helping fund the United States' growing deficits for decades to come. That deal has stood for almost half a century, but now, for the first time, not only have the supply-demand dynamics of the oil market changed with the fracking revolution, but there's a credible threat to US hegemony in oil pricing in the shape of China, now the world's largest oil importer. Suddenly, the rules of perhaps the most important game in the world are changing. This week, on Adventures in Finance, China's crude oil benchmark. Today is the 5th of April 2018 and welcome everybody to episode 61 of Adventures in Finance. Here in the Cayman Islands with me is producer James, mercifully no longer clad in his Star Wars pyjamas. James? Yeah, I'm feeling good about that actually. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not nice waking up at, at 5 o'clock in the morning uh, to do a recording, but sometimes what needs must be done. Well, you know what's worse than that? Waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning and having to sit next to a grown man wearing Star Wars pyjamas, so... <laughs> Thank God that neither of us have to put up with that anymore. And uh, joining us from New York, Alex. Come in, Alex. Over. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Uh, everything good in the sunny Caribbean, mate. How's the six inches of snow you had this week? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, uh, it was warm and it was cold and there was snow. It was dry. It, it's, it's, I don't know what, what's going on. See, we, we have a word for that in England. Mm-hmm. We call it weather. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we got a lot of it. Yeah, now we, we've got a lot to get to this week. Um, Shortly joining us is going to be uh, my friend Luke Groman of Forest for the Trees. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, China, 
oil, the dollar, gold, and all kinds of good things. This is a, this is a fascinating story that is, is unraveling as we speak. And it's something you're really going to want to pay attention to because I think it's going to be a big story going forward. But before we get to that, we have to kick off things with our long short. And as always, Alex, I'm going to do the decent thing and I'm going to let you go first. I am, I am short California. So uh, the, a California judge has ruled that Starbucks and, and other coffee companies uh, have to warn their customers that the coffee could give them cancer. Um, because I, I know we talked about, it's actually last week we talked about both Starbucks and, uh, and science about uh, beverages and how it keeps flipping around. Apparently there's, there's a chemical, and I'm going to butcher this name, called acrylamide. Um, which happened, which is a byproduct of roasting coffee, which is present in coffee and which in very high doses apparently can increase your risk of cancer. Now, it doesn't actually appear in very high doses in coffee. Uh, there's probably not a serious health concern here, but the judge said that Starbucks couldn't prove there wasn't a serious health concern, so they have to warn all their consumers in California that the coffee could kill them. So is, is this now, this is now the benchmark, is it? Is this is where we're at now. If you can't prove something then we have to warn everybody about it. I mean, is, is it possible to prove that working regularly with James isn't some kind of health hazard? I think you'd have a, you'd have a pretty good case there. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting because basically California passed this law saying that, that, that Starbucks and all these companies had to warn about it. So th- that's why I'm shorting the state because it really goes back to this law making them do this warning based on really what, what is junk science. See, the trouble is if you short California... Yeah. That means you know you're short San Francisco and you're short San Diego, and you're short the Pacific Coast Highway, mm. uh, you know Manhattan Beach. I mean that, that's I, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd probably give up coffee before I went short California. I've got to say. Yeah, no, no offense to our California listeners. I mean, a lot of good things, a lot of good people, a lot of good cults in there. But you know, this the one rule. Too late. Too late. There is already a bill going through the court to make you an enemy of the state. That's I'm right. afraid. Um, well, my short this week uh, is going to come as. Precisely zero surprise to anybody who's been watching the news. My short this week is Tesla. Um, and, uh, you know, I, perhaps more specifically, the actions in the last few days of its uh, CEO. Uh, it's remarkable to me that the, the, the lack of understanding of what's going on here is just breathtaking. I mean, first of all, we had um, this, this tragic autopilot accident uh, where, where a, a poor Tesla driver, you know, died in a, in a car wreck that was essentially where the car turned into a fireball. Um, and, you know, fast forward to the weekend and Elon is tweeting in a tweet conversation with someone and, and, and tweets, you know, everything's better with fire. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just insensitive. It shows a lack of empathy. It shows a lack of awareness to me. And then to compound that by making a tweet joke about Tesla going bankrupt um, – on Sunday, right after Moody's is downgraded and uh, in the middle of a massive recall. You know, if you're a stockholder or a bondholder watching that sort of behavior from someone who's just been voted into the biggest pay packet potentially of all time, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I was just beside myself at the weekend. I just, I just don't understand how anyone could be so foolish and have so little awareness of, of the importance of his actions in the bigger picture. And then, you know, to laugh it off on Monday, just uh, compounded it for me. So, you know, I, I'm just baffled by all this. Uh, you know, my, my feelings on Tesla, the stock, are well known. Um, uh, and, I, you know, I think it goes a lot lower from here. 
Um, but I, you know, specifically the actions of Elon over the last few days have just astounded even me. It, it really is kind of shocking, right? Because they do have to raise this huge amount of money just to keep the lights on because they, they lose money every day of the week. Uh, and... And also the joke wasn't very funny. I didn't think it was that funny. He was right. like, oh, we're going we're going bankrupt. And then there was a picture of him with a sign that said bankrupt. And and, and they said, even though we're selling Easter eggs, it, it was kind of a mess of, like, as a joke writer, I was actually more hurt by it than as a watcher of the financial markets. <laughs> yeah, I, look, look, I mean, everyone has their own sense of humor, I guess. And, and no doubt uh, the Teslarian sense of humor is failing as I say this stuff, but <laughs> I'm not out there to try and offend anybody. These are just, uh, this is just what I think. I, I'm just, I'm just baffled by the whole thing. Absolutely baffled yeah. by it. Anyway, um, let's move on to the longs. What are you long of this week, Alex? Yeah, I'm long private lives, not the Noel Coward play, but Wall Street Journal reporting that $2.4 trillion was raised privately, um, in the United States, uh, in 2017 compared to $2.1 trillion in public markets. In other words, more money uh, has been going into companies that are startups or small companies or, or, or even large uh, non-public companies raising money than in IPOs and, and other ways that uh, public investors give money to companies. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of a, a startling statistic. It really shows that, first of all, that the private markets have been opened up as, as President Obama tried to do with the Jobs Act. But it, it just seems like a, a big change in the way businesses are going to operate and think about their incentives. I mean, it's it's just so much more money that's not thinking about the next quarter's numbers. That's that's not thinking about, um, you know, watching the stock or bond move up or down every day. It it, it seems like a, a big shift in, in American business overall. Yeah, you know, this is something we've been talking about for a while. You know, both Raoul and I have, have, have spoken at length about investing away from stock markets into into private businesses you know that, that where you don't have a mark to market every day because you know central bank governor says something you don't lose or make five percent on your valuations uh, and, I, and I, to me this is a perfectly understandable and natural evolution that people will go back to to to, to putting money into private companies where where you you just have to focus on the business focus on the cash flow focus on building a good uh, enterprise and and the rewards will come so I, you know I, I think that's that's something to be cheered for sure Okay, so that brings us to my long. Now, it's a cautious long this week, um, but I think an important one. I am long Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Cautiously, uh, it's early days and we've seen a lot of false dawns, but, you know, um, some of the things he's doing over there in Saudi Arabia are are game-changing. He's made a lot of enemies and there's a lot of negative press about um, whatever went on in the Ritz-Carlton, we really don't know, but, you know, having travelled to Saudi to give a speech um, in January, I was pleasantly surprised by what I found. And you're, uh, there's a, an, an interview he gave this week in the Atlantic magazine, which um, contains a whole bunch of really interesting stuff where he is setting his, himself up as a reformer. You know, his Vision 2030 project is, is real. It's, it's far-reaching, and it's definitely having an impact in Saudi Arabia. But so, you know, some of the things he talks about in uh, this interview are things that we've not heard from uh, a Saudi crown prince or a Saudi king at any point um, in the last 50 years. So so I think it's important to have a 32-year-old at the helm uh, of such a strategically important country who's saying a lot of the right things that uh, will play well in the region. As I said, it's a cautious long, it's a little early um, to to be all in, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm surprised at some of the stuff I'm reading and, and positively so. Not to make this too, too market-based, this is an important, would be an important development that would affect many uh, millions of people in the world, but w- what might it mean for, for the oil markets if, if the Saudi uh, regime is, is changing its tone? Well, it, look, it's, it's, um, I think they're, they're changing their tone in the oil space out of necessity. I think they realize that um, there, there is a massive groundswell move towards green energy and, and that is a, a blessing for the world and a problem for a country who uh, derive most of their revenue from the oil market. So, you know, look, I, think, I think the oil markets um, are changing. I think Saudi will have to change with them. And so the fact that they have a 32-year-old crown prince is probably incredibly important to have someone young who's open to change as opposed to, uh, you know, historically a, a very old leadership. And, and you know, the, the moves, the strides he's taken in terms of changing things in the kingdom is is remarkable you know john john burbank um has spoken about this a lot uh he's been he's been in on this for for some time now traveling to saudi and he's seen that change and you know when he spoke first spoke to me about it i was a little skeptical but i have to say the intervening 18 months has has really kind of uh piqued my interest and i think this this interview in, in the atlantic magazine you can find it on the internet um is 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 worth reading. I think he's an important person to understand, and it's a very encouraging uh, conversation. I think oil and change isn't a bad transition to our feature segment this week. Yeah, exactly right. I guess this week uh, is Luke Groman, who's become a good friend of mine. And, and before we get to, I want to tell you the story of how he and I met because it's uh, it's quite serendipitous. I was on a plane a f- uh, two or three years ago, and I sat down. I was get myself ready, a book out and stick my iPad in the seat back pocket and, and the iPad wouldn't go into the pocket because there was some balled up paper in there. And I took it out and I was just about to hand it to the flight attendant and I saw on the bottom of the screwed up paper uh, the word gold. I thought, oh, what's this all about? So I, you know, I opened this, this five or six page report which didn't have a beginning and didn't have an end. Um, so I had no title page, I had no idea who'd written it and I read this report and it was fascinating to me. It connected a lot of dots that I'd been trying to connect and I ended up doing a presentation built around it. Uh, a couple of years later, but I, I carried this report with me for about a year, and everywhere I went, I would well, chat to friends in the in the industry, and I would show them this report. And say, do you have any idea who who wrote this? And there was just a logo at the top, and nobody had a clue who it was. And and eventually, I was in New York, and I, and I showed a friend of mine. He said, "Oh, I, th- I think this is the the forest for the trees guy, uh, something Luke, someone or other." Uh, he said, "I think he lives in Connecticut." So I happened to be in New York, and I, and I found the website and I emailed uh, the website and just said, look, you know, this is a bit weird, but this is who I am and I've found this report. I think it's by you. I'm not sure if it is or not, but, you know, if it isn't, disregard this email. And if it is, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to buy you dinner. And uh, Luke came back and said, yeah, that's my report. And, you know, he said, look, I, I, I was supposed to have a dinner tomorrow night and it's been cancelled, so why don't we meet for dinner tomorrow night? So we went for dinner and sat and talked about all this stuff, which is a fascinating conversation. Um and at the end of the dinner, I said, well, you know, don't you, you probably have to go because your last train back to Connecticut is probably, uh, you know, around this sort of time. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, it's, it's late. It's, you, you've got to get out to Connecticut. He said, no, I live in Cleveland. What are you talking about? And it just so happened that, that that one day when I emailed Luke, he happened to be in New York and he happened to have the evening free. I mean, it was just serendipitous in the extreme. Um, and he's become a good friend over the last couple of years. And, and he is someone that I rely on uh, to give me... Uh, or keep me updated and, and on this story that we're going to talk about now. So, so without any further ado, let's 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 welcome him in, Luke. Um, welcome back to Adventures of Finance. Great to have you with us again. 
Oh, thanks for having me on, Grant. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be back and uh, have a chance to talk with you. Well, so the, the, the subject at hand is this, uh, the rising interest in this idea of a petro yuan. And um, you, you and I have spent a lot of time talking about this. It, it's, it's, it's become, it seems, a very controversial subject, and it's, it's igniting all kinds of debates on Twitter. Um, but what I want to do is, is kind of go back to the beginning, because we've kind of dropped into a, a point in time where this is now a thing, and people are talking about it as if everyone understands the bare bones of it. And, and, I, and I just don't think that's true. So what I want to do is walk back to that original uh, piece of work of yours that I found when I started reading this, because it connected a lot of dots for me. And so what I want you to do, if you can, as a primer, is just very slowly walk through what this is about, why it's important, how the system works right now. Sure. So, uh, you know, historically, I guess to take take a step back, China, historically, um, the way the global oil market has worked is, is oil has been uh, priced uh, and settled essentially solely in dollars. And uh, yeah, that was after 1971. And so through that, um, you know, th- that system worked. If you look at how um, from, call it, uh, 19, you know, 1973 through probably 2000 or 2003, so, so nearly 30 years, if, if you look at um, U.S. Fed funds rates against the price of oil, if, um, you can see a clear relationship. And so, you know, after the U.S. closed the gold window in 71 unilaterally, um, the petrodollar system uh, uh, where uh, Saudi agreed to price oil only in dollars was instituted. And it's it to, to me, it, it's never you never really find it anywhere in the um, uh, in the literature, et cetera. But you can see it if you look at Fed funds against the price of oil over a nearly 30 year time frame. You can see that the United States essentially managed uh, to keep the dollar as good as gold for oil, or I'll, I'll say gagfo, just to say it, you know, good as gold for oil. Well, now, and, let's, let's just look, let's just, just, just dig into that because that's going to be a very central theme of this. Just explain what you mean by as good as gold for oil because uh, it, it's a really important concept for us to understand as we go forward. Absolutely. So, you know, there's a lot of talk these days around uh, the dollar, the dollar's reserve status. Uh, is it waning? Is it not? Um, there's very little discussion around, um, you know, yes, it's been an exorbitant privilege, but there was also a responsibility attached to that. And that by that, I mean, once the petrodollar system was set up, the dollar, U.S. dollar reserve status with the petrodollar uh, mandated that we had to manage the dollar not just for the United States domestic economy, uh, but also for the global for the global economy. In other words, we couldn't just spend uh, dollars willy nilly uh, because that would ultimately inflate the price of oil to some level um, that was uh, disadvantageous to uh, everybody else that couldn't print dollars. And so there was this. You know, the implicit, you know, deal was, um, you know, the sort of the leg of the petrodollar deal that's never discussed really is, is our responsibility to external U.S. creditors to, to manage the dollar in a responsible manner such that the purchasing power of the dollar relative to oil or good as gold for oil 
was relatively consistent uh, over uh, under the petrodollar. And if you call up Fed funds rates against oil, you can see pretty, you know, a pretty, it's not a perfect relationship, but it's a relationship. Um, and the gist of it, the way we've looked at it, I think in the piece that you're referencing uh, of ours once upon a time, Grant, is uh, we looked at it as uh, the number of barrels of oil that a treasury bond bought, right? So if you thought face value, $1,000 uh, treasury bond, um, you know, I want to say you know, oil from, you know, call it the mid-70s to early 2000s, so nearly 30 years, ranged, call it between, you know, pretty consistently 15 and $25 a barrel. Um, uh, and uh, at the extremes, it would get to 30. When it got really cheap, it would get to 10. But re- that, that you could see when it got near 30, the Fed would raise rates uh, to try to bring it back down. And when it got near, you know, uh, at the low end of that range, it would the Fed would be more stimulative with the dollar to, to kind of manage that Fed funds rate relative to the price of oil. So this, this good as gold for oil concept was – you know, originally, of course, after after World War II, Bretton Woods, you know, the dollar was tied to gold. After we severed that tie, you know, this external um, responsibility uh, of the United States of managing the dollar to make it as good as gold uh, for oil uh, in order to sort of make the system work. So, so, Luke, is this just about the U.S. has been able to keep oil in a reasonable band of prices or, or has the U.S. used this privilege slash responsibility to further its political and, and economic goals? Um, you know, it was, you know, it, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a complex question. It's a good one. I, I think ultimately um, there's, you sort of, uh, it's kind of come and gone in phases uh, is the answer to that question. So, you know, initially when we unilaterally closed the gold window, the world was not happy. It was very chaotic. You had the 70s. There's a really interesting uh, Fed archives. Uh, you can Google it. It's called the Reform of October 1979. I think they published it, and the Fed published it in like 05. The gist of it was was that you know you you got into the late 70s. You had gold running. You had oil running. Uh, the dollar was very weak. Uh, you had open concerns about the dollar. Um, in, in U.S. media, let alone world media. And, and Volcker went, as the head of the Fed, went to uh, Belgrade, U- Yugoslavia, for an IMF meeting in October of 1979. And he spent a grand total of 24 hours there before he turned around and flew back home. And there, what, what this Fed archive says is that, you know, quote, his ears were left ringing with the stern words of U.S. creditors. Um, uh, and it was the Germans and the French at that point basically saying, hey, you got to do something about the dollar. And, and he immediately flew back and implemented, um, you know, what is known in the U.S. media as breaking the back of inflation, uh, which he did. Uh, but ultimately what he was doing was defending the dollar from an incipient, you know, high slash hyperinflation. Uh, uh, he was defending the dollar from from losing its reserve status. And so what he did by doing that was really – um, very painful to the domestic U.S. economy, uh, but showed a willingness to manage the dollar responsibly for the good of the world to keep it as good as gold for oil. And and he bought the dollar a lot of credibility for the next 20 to 25 years in, in, in so doing. And so to answer your question, it was, you know, it's when we started off with the petrodollar system, it was all about us. And then Volcker implemented that, and it was about managing the dollar responsibly. And then you sort of had a gradual, um, you know, shift back in the other direction of the pendulum, you know, until we got to the early 2000s, where 
you know, the economic, you know, economic situation had changed. The world had become more financialized. Emerging markets were a bigger part of growth. Um, and so it, it, it became harder and harder uh, to, and this is ultimately the crux of Triffin's dilemma, right? This, this conflict between if, if the reserve currency issuer uh, issues its own currency as the reserve, um, this conflict between managing the currency for your domestic needs and the needs of the world, the external creditors. And those, those, uh, that conflict came to more of a head in the early 2000s. And you can see pretty clearly that you started to see sort of this dollar being managed as good as gold for oil relationship really began to break down uh, beyond 2003 or 2004 as oil rose way beyond um, uh, uh, where the range we had seen before and rates didn't follow. Okay, so 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 let's get back to um, the the overall arc of the story because that that's a that's a great background now so people can understand this concept. So just take us back um, and carry on explaining it, how the system works now and and how the, uh, the 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 changes around the edges have slowly been starting to creep in. So, the, the, you know, it's interesting. The way the system works now is, you know, you had uh, William White, who was the head of the BIS for – or the chief economist of the BIS, excuse me, for nearly – for a very long time. As, as a ruler. He's currently with the OECD. He's worked in a number of senior roles. He's one of the few uh, senior policymakers to warn of the 07-08 timeframe ahead of time. At any rate, he referred to the current system as a current non-system, and I think it's a very good description because it – it, it is just, you know, from this, what we prior described, it is kind of broken down around a couple things. The first is that um, it, it broke down around um, growth of emerging markets and their energy consumption. Uh, and so you get into this, um, you know, this keeping the dollar as good as gold for oil is easy for the Fed to do when the U.S. is the biggest consumer of oil and one of the biggest producers and the biggest importer. Um, you know, they can manage the U.S. economy to kind of keep the dollar as good as gold for oil. Well, once, you know, beyond 2003, 2004 in particular, and certainly by now, you know, China is now the world's biggest oil importer. Emerging markets are the majority of global GDP for the first time in 300 years. And so you're really the Fed's ability to keep the dollar as good as gold for oil has really began to completely fall apart uh, in the mid, you know, 2000s. Uh, and, and that has two implications. Number one, um, you know, it, 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 it speaks to this, you know, quote unquote, non-system that William White ran, right? So the Fed is suddenly sort of operating with a toolkit uh, that's no longer really suitable for the world we're living in prior, relative to the prior years. Um, and and it also speaks to um, growing motivation for creditors. Um, this begins to drive a problem for them. In other words, you know the sole the, the fact that oil and critical commodities are still only priced in dollars, and the the U.S. isn't keeping the dollar as good as gold for oil. Uh, begins to create uh, over time existential um, problems for the current account. Uh, in emerging markets, and in particular, emerging markets like China. So, so when we talk about um, the importance of this, and again, I, I really want to keep breaking this down as we go through it, because I, I, you know, my own personal belief is that this is a very important story. Uh, and you know, as you and I have got into it on Twitter recently with with people, there's no telling whether this is absolutely the answer or this is exactly what's going on. But it's 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 a very interesting dynamic to think through. And so, I want I want people to understand what 
the having the reserve currency and what having oil priced exclusively in that currency, why is that so in, important in terms of uh, dollar reserves around the world? Well, it's, it's so important because you have to look at it in the context of uh, U.S. Uh, debt and U.S. entitlements, right? And so if you look at U.S. debt, I think we just went over $21 trillion, uh, uh, <laughs> and the trillions are coming a lot faster these days. Yeah, you know um, the truth. <laughs> and the bigger one to, to me that we've always written about is, and, and that you and I have certainly talked about, Grant, is, is the entitlement picture where, you know, the USOs, and, you know, Richard Fisher in May of 2008, the former head of the Dallas Fed, he put the number then at between 80 and 90 trillion. And of course, you know, rates were higher. So uh, it's, it's, it's easily 100 trillion. I've seen estimates as high as 200 trillion, but 100 is easy to talk about. So we'll call it $100 trillion of entitlements, which... Um, you know, for a long, long time, um, policymakers would say, well, we need to reform entitlements in the West. We need to reform entitlements in the West. And so this is not just a U.S. problem. It's a Western Europe problem uh, as well. Um, how the, the, the issue with it with the U.S. is really twofold. Um, the biggest is that the, do- the dollar is the world's reserve currency. In other words, the Europeans print a bunch of, uh, of euros to pay for their Western you know, entitlements. Um, they're going to weaken their currency. They'll create problems relative to trade partners. But they're not going to inflate the price of oil for everyone in the world. If the United States prints $100 trillion for entitlements, um, the price of oil everywhere is going to skyrocket because oil is only priced in dollars. And we saw this, right? We ran uh, uh, when the Fed uh, implemented QE in, in, in 2009, 2010, 11. You know, Western economists say, see, it wasn't inflationary. Well, yeah, it was because we exported it through um, uh, through our, our, our capital account and, and through oil markets so that you saw it wasn't inflationary in the U.S., China was having some inflation problems when we after we did QE. Uh, the Middle East certainly had some uh, inflation problems, so much so that it was a contributing factor to the Arab Spring. And so the point here is that if that was just with three or four trillion dollars worth of printing uh, is what happened to oil then. If the U.S., if oil is only priced in dollars when the U.S., you know, has to print a hundred trillion dollars uh, for entitlements, um, it, it's a it's a huge non-starter. You're going to really cripple it's an existential threat, ultimately, to places like China, even places like Europe um, that import a lot of oil but are net creditors uh, of the U.S. And so that's sort of point one of why they're doing that. The second is, is historically, a lot of Western economists said, well, we'll reform it before it becomes a problem. And I think in the last, you know, 12 to 18, well, 18 to 24 months with the populism uh, that has popped up uh, um, in, in Western nations, in the U.S. in particular, I think that window's closed, um, you know, and I, the big picture message of populism in, in our research is, you know, the, the, the case for, well, don't worry about $100 trillion in entitlements uh, because they'll reform it. It's not going to happen. They're going to have to pay every dime of that, which means they're going to have to print every dime of that over time. And that then ties back to if you are China in particular, and we'll use them because it's the flows are very easy and to, easy to understand. Um if the United States prints $100 trillion for entitlements over the next 20 years, you know, the $3 trillion pile of FX reserves you have um, that you're really looking at, not in terms of dollars, but in terms of how much oil, how much, com- how many commodities that can buy you, 
you're looking at a guaranteed severe loss of, of purchasing power um, uh, that will really hurt your 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 you know your country, your ability to rule inflation rates, uh, uh, you know, in, in in China. Okay, so this is, this is the perfect way to segue into the next part of this. So. Um, yeah, the, the U.S. and I want to point out that hundred trillion dollars number that you you pulled out. That's not a number you've pulled out of the clear blue sky, right? That's that's essentially the off balance sheet liabilities in terms of Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. You know, that's a real number. Correct. Um, and so, you know, when you when you talk about the problems facing China uh, with the fact that the U.S. has this enormous check that it has to pay, uh, and it does currently have the ability to just print money to do that. Um, so explain what the Chinese have started to do to get around that uh, and, and the various moves that are slowly been taking place in the background. Yeah, so I think what, what, what China's, you know, when, when, if you're China looking at this from sort of a game theory perspective, you can see, you know, you've got this pile of reserves. And that was sort of how China, you know, the, the message to China of the late 90s crisis was we need as many, a big a pile of dollars as possible so that that doesn't happen to us. Um, and so that's what they did. And, um, you know, that was the case until call it 2013 or so um, uh, when they said, you know, we're late 2013. They said, yeah, we're not going to stockpile FX reserves anymore. We're, we're good. And so when you look at at how China, from a game theoric perspective, can play this, they are looking at the U.S., which is going to need to print $100 trillion, which is going to really inflate the price of oil if you're China. And so if you're China, there's really a couple ways around this. Number one, you can find a lot more oil. Um, and certainly, if you look at what China has been doing over the last five to you know 10 years, um, it's been really about essentially – uh, taking long-term perspectives to lock up oil and other commodity supplies, basically swapping dollars for oil. Because, all, you know, it's interesting, ultimately what we're talking about here is a tremendous, you know, temporal mismatch between the dollar price of oil, dollar price of commodity, the, the value of commodities and the supply of dollars that is going to come, right? If there's $100 trillion coming uh, and the price, the, it's not being reflected in the price of oil and commodities today, China's effectively arbitraging this because they're looking out. They don't really care about six months from now, 12 months from now, is oil going to be up or down. They're looking out going, the Americans got to print this $100 trillion. Price of oil is cheap today. So they're busy swapping dollars today for oil supplies in Africa, you know, copper mines in South America. And you can see that they've been doing this um, you know, uh, for the last five or ten years. The, the, the other way you can get around this, uh, if you're China, uh, or at least better prepare yourself for it, is to pay for oil in a better currency than the dollar. And, you know, at this point, everyone will say, well, oh, my gosh, what's a better currency than the dollar? Well, if you're China, the best currency to pay in is one that you can print. And that's, of course, their own currency. And so that has sort of been step two, has been um, start setting up the groundwork to give the yuan the credibility uh, to essentially print yuan for oil, uh, because that then these you know that is really you know the you know use swapping swapping dollar reserves for oil reserves uh, all over the world like I've been doing the last five to ten years. That's a stopgap solution, um, um, and it certainly helps. But the real the holy grail. The one that really gets you out of trouble, sort of permanently, or gets you out of the you know the hundred trillion dollar tidal wave of liquidity that's coming um, permanently, is 
the ability to print your own currency for oil because now you have control over your own uh, more control over your own current account vis-a-vis your commodity imports. So this is you know this is this is a really important thing for people to understand. You know, this this ability to price your major import and and the commodity that upon which your entire economy functions um, without having to rely on the monetary policy of the U.S. is, is incredibly important to understand. And so you know, over the last several years, the moves um, around this, which you know, they pop up on financial pages of the newspapers every now and again, we've seen the Chinese start to sign a bunch of agreements around the fringes you know, with places like Iran and Turkey, um, whereby they will uh, pay for oil imports from those countries directly in Yuan or Remembi. Um, so j- just talk about why that's important and, and where that potential set of moves is leading towards. Yeah, so the, that, it's, it's incredibly important because it gives them you know, the flexibility. If China can run out of dollars. China can't run out of renminbi, of course, right? So um, these deals have given them that level of flexibility. You know, when you talk about, um, you know, that FX reserve pile, um, you know, China has still about 26% of their GDP in FX reserves. And that that is, you know, a holdover from their lesson of the Southeast Asia crisis, which is we better have a whole lot of dollars uh, in case of a rainy day so that we don't have happen to us what happened to Southeast Asia in the late 90s. Um, by way of comparison, the United States holds 0.6% of GDP in FX reserves. And the reason is, is because push comes to shove, people will take dollars. So we can, we can print dollars out of thin air and import whatever we need. It's just simply not a risk for the United States to have a, a Southeast Asia-like balance of payments crisis um, uh, because of how the dollar is treated. And so what you can see here, the implications of, of China gaining the ability to print yuan are, are enormous. We've been operating in a world in financial markets for 70 to 100 years where there's only been one currency able to print uh, you know, be printed for, for commodities. And now all of a sudden, uh, you have a second. Um, and so you've seen them, um, you know, sign these, uh, you know, you know they've, they've been interacting directly or, or trading directly in yuan with uh, Iran, uh, Venezuela, Russia. Um, and then, of course, it's, it's not, in our opinion, uh, coincidence that these are sort of the, you know, quote unquote, big three rogue states right now. Um, and, and more recently, uh, moving towards this yuan oil contract, which I think increases rather than just doing sort of these bilateral over-the-counter de- type deals, if you will, you know, this begins to you know more formalize it on an exchange. And I think ultimately having a contract gives the PBOC more uh, flexibility um, to manage um, oil imports in particular. But I ultimately think this will spread to. You know, other other commodities, but, but but oil and energy are big ones. But and the important thing for for people to grasp here um, is that there's been a fundamental shift in the oil supply demand dynamics in the world. You know, previously, uh, when when the petrodollar system was instituted, the U.S. was by far the biggest importer of oil in the world. So they had to pay foreigners for their oil. So so creating that stability uh, in terms of their pricing power w- was crucially important. And 
What's happened in a very short space of time over the last sort of five or six years with the fracking revolution is that the US has now become a net exporter of oil. And who's become the biggest importer of oil? The Chinese. So it, it's, they're in exactly the same position that the US were 40 years ago, which is why this is such a crucial dynamic for them to try and get in place. Now, the one thing, the one link in this that we haven't talked about yet, and I've deliberately left it out to this point, is gold, because this is where um, a lot of people get confused, is where a lot of people get, um, get kind of sidetracked, uh, thinking this is a story about gold, when it isn't. This is about the dollar, it's about oil, it's about the renminbi. But there is uh, a, a, a set of forces that this exerts on gold, and there are two, there are two uh, competing ideas here. One is what we're talking about here. The other is the so-called gold-backed yuan, uh, whereby the Chinese uh, use their gold reserves to back the yuan uh, and, and, and become the world's reserve currency in that method. And I want to be quite clear, that's not what we're talking about here. We are not talking about a gold-backed yuan. But, but do no. talk, Luke, if you would, about the link where gold fits into this puzzle uh, and what these forces that we've spoken about, how they affect gold potentially. Sure, absolutely. Let me back up real quick too on just the, the oil net export point you made for the U.S. We're not quite to a net, a net export position yet, but our our, our, our our trade balance has improved enormously and there's a way to see clear given oil. At the right oil price, we certainly could be a net right. exporter and that's a huge change You know, to your point. Your, your point's dead on there. So uh, to, to answer your question, how does... Um, how does gold play into this? So if you go back to our 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 two you know our two points before, um, you know gold plays into this really in, in two ways. So our two points before that you know if China sees the U.S. has to print a hundred trillion, and there's sort of two ways, game theoric ways to get around this, which is you know swap dollars for oil, physical oil supplies all over the world. Or two, gain the ability to print yuan for oil, and and we've talked about them increasingly setting up uh, deals with quote unquote rogue states to do that. Um, the challenge that that speaks to sort of point number one on on gold um, and how gold comes into this, and and the reason we say that is that um, remember we, we have to they are looking for a currency. Um, that is better than the dollar to pay in oil. And for them, the yuan's better than the dollar. For the rest of the world, I don't even think Vladimir Putin would say yuan is better than oil uh, on, on its merits, or excuse me, better than the dollar on its merits for his oil. Um, and so what we think um, the sweetener to that deal, if you will, um, or uh, is been, and what, what the gold and the first way gold uh, plays into this relationship is that for us, China is using gold as a means to an end, um, and that is using setting up uh, gold exchanges uh, where you can exchange offshore yuan earned through um, uh, selling oil to China in yuan can be recycled into physical gold. You know, Vladimir Putin may not like yuan paper yuan more than paper dollars, but he knows uh, uh, he knows that physical gold is better. Than paper dollars, and he knows this uh, for a number of reasons, not least of which is that Alan Greenspan last year or two years ago said that no currency can compete with gold. Uh, so, um, when we look at the first leg of how gold plays into this, I think China has has effectively reopened uh, a Bretton Woods gold window uh, 
uh, at a floating yuan price as a means of gaining the ability to print yuan for oil. And so when we look what China, um, you know, they really started uh, ramping up the Shanghai Gold Exchange uh, uh, in 2011, I want to say. It's been open since like 2002. Started ramping it up in 2011. A real uh, big moment there was the you know, the international board of the Shanghai Gold Exchange opened in two, third quarter of 2014, where it first became, um, you know, uh, math or, or, or from a flow perspective, theoretically possible for uh, China to pay Russia in yuan for oil and Russia, uh, you know, exchange those offshore yuan for physical gold at the Shanghai International Board or SGEI and, and bring that back. Uh, to Russia. Up to that point, Shanghai Gold had been all mainland China, and, and you could not take that gold out of China. So the SGEI was the first time the sort of you know yuan gold window, if you will, uh, reopened for the first time in you know you know gold window was open in in, in you know forty three years at that point. Uh, the following summer, China linked the SGEI to Hong Kong. And uh, uh, to make it ostensibly to make it easier, right? It's you know if you're Shanghai Gold Exchange International Board, again, if I am even if I'm Vladimir Putin, um, yeah, I can get my gold, but it's still sitting in Shanghai, and I don't know how much I trust that. So you know, Hang, uh, Hong Kong, in terms of its um, it, its its stature and its uh, its tenure as a world financial center, certainly way more beyond. Um, uh, way, way beyond uh, Shanghai's uh, uh, tenure. And so uh, you began to see more volumes flow then. And then there was this uh, Dubai Yuan oil, uh, Yuan gold contract opened in early 2017. And so what you can kind of see is this network of, um, uh, you know, basically reopening of a gold window whereby um, surpluses can be exchanged, uh, Yuan surpluses can be exchanged for physical gold. For in particular, uh, you know, oil. Now, that's not to say every barrel of oil um, that Russia sells to China is going to be settled in Chinese good or uh, in yuan gold. I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that that'll ever be the case. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, China is still a massive creditor nation, and so the reality is, is, is of the flows is probably China would sell oil to Russia and yuan. Uh, Russia then has offshore yuan, which they can turn around and buy any number of Chinese goods. Uh, and if you know there are net surpluses left over, some percentage of those net surpluses uh, have the ability to, and probably are, being you know recycled into gold, or will at some point be recycled into gold. So that is sort of how gold plays in uh, in the first way. The second way it plays into is is the point you made initially, Grant, which was a tremendous point, which is to say. You know, for 70 years, oil's only been priced in dollars. And so if you look at, you know, analyzing the global oil markets, I'm not going to say it was ever easy because it's never easy. Uh, but it was it was really, you know, two dimensional. And that by that it was, you know, what's oil supply demand doing and what is the dollar doing? What's the Fed policy vis-a-vis the dollar? And if you understood those two things, that was those were sort of the the, the two key ways you had to manage the, you know, the oil market. Once you start pricing oil in yuan or maybe in euros at some point, et cetera, now all of a sudden you've added a, a sort of a third dimension uh, to analyzing uh, the oil markets where it's no longer just about, okay, it's oil supply demand, it's fed in the dollar, but now it's the, what's the dollar cross rate against the yuan? Um, you know, if China wants and needs cheap oil in yuan 
And the U.S. needs a certain level of oil prices and dollars to keep shale production growing. Well, all right, now you need expensive oil and relatively expensive oil in dollars. You need relatively cheap oil in yuan. Suddenly, that has implications for the yuan versus the dollar. That tells you the yuan's got to go up against the dollar through the oil link. And so there's this this FX uh, leg to the oil market that simply hasn't existed um, uh, I mean, people looked at it in cross in terms a little bit, but 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 in terms of really through this oil link having implications for the uh, um, you know for for, for for currency pairs and where this then ties in the second way it ties into gold is um, it, it, having oil priced in multiple currencies completely really reduces the need for OPEC and for a cartel to sort of artificially restrict oil supplies because they were only getting one currency. Now they can sort of, and this is, you know, gasp, free market, um, you can shop around, right? If I'm, if I'm Saudi Arabia, and Saudi's probably a bad example uh, because they haven't yet priced oil in yuan, I think, yeah, it's important, but we can get to that. If I'm Russia, uh, and I'm pricing oil. I all of a sudden I used to have to price in dollars, and that was that. And now I can say, okay, I can price in dollars. I can price in yuan. And I look at those two and say, okay, which which has the better economic fundamentals? Which has which currency has a current account surplus or a current for a current account deficit? Which country do I do more trade with? You know, if I've got a pile of dollars anyway, then you know I might want to keep a lot of it in, in dollars. But if I'm doing all my trade with yuan, it doesn't make any sense for me to keep all this pile of dollars just because that's the way it always worked. And so, what this ultimately does is it begins to shift the global currency market back to the currency fundamentals uh, that dictated currency fundamentals for thousands of years, um, which was. You know, the country that had the best current account and the country that had the biggest pile of reserves had the best currency. You know, and for the last 45 years under the petrodollar, the country that's had the best currency has had the worst current account fundamentals and the lowest pile of reserves. And that was just the way the system worked. But this, in turn, has very, um, you know, severe implications or important implications for the way FX markets trade because, you know, the dollar's not the clean. If, if, if the FX markets begin moving back towards, a uh, um, uh, balance of payments and FX reserve position fundamentals. The dollar's not the cleanest dirty shirt. It's it's the dirtiest dirty shirt by a wide wide margin. Um, and that then in turn has implications for gold um, uh, as sort of a reference point for all of these currencies. So there's there's a couple of things there. First of all, I mean the other the other thing obviously that has been common to reserve currencies. You talked about the strongest you know, financial economic position, but also the strongest military. Uh, is is the other thing that has essentially backed the biggest uh, backed reserves, the world's reserve currency for, for for hundreds of years, and obviously we've seen the moves that China are making in terms of um, their military. I mean, they're a long, long way behind the United States, but, it, but I think it's worth pointing that out. But the second thing, obviously, is when we talk about pricing oil in dollars and yuan, and having the ability to decide which you um, which you want to transact in. Obviously, there is the peg between the two. So, so talk a little bit about whether this puts strains on that peg uh, and, and how this might affect the, the yuan dollar peg? Yeah, I think it, it, it will put strains on that peg. Um, and I think it will put strains on that peg. Ultimately, you know, when we go back to, um, you know, China's motivations, right, where this, 
they need to get away from only dollar-priced oil imports before the U.S. effectively prints this $100 trillion over the next X years. Um, China will have the ability to control their own current account deficit vis-a-vis oil by adjusting uh, the ratio of gold to oil. So if you look at these the system that China appears to be setting up, you know, this this reopening of the Bretton Woods gold window, it looks like they have sort of fixed the two mistakes the U.S. made in trying to run a gold window. So the U.S. made really two mistakes. Number one, they pegged the price of gold, which is a bad idea because every currency peg in history has broken eventually. Uh, and number two, uh, the U.S. set it up so we had to give away our gold um, to, to settle imbalances. And, and that sort of didn't matter till it mattered. Um, and, and China looks to have structured this in a way that avoids both of these. And so when you look at, um, you know, the structure of the Chinese gold market, all of gold mainland China is not allowed to leave. So that's sort of their pile. And then when you look at the SGEI, Hong Kong, Dubai, and you, gold that is exchanged for yuan, uh, offshore yuan, in these places can come and go as it, as as you see fit. Um, but it's not going to be settled with mainland Chinese gold, and so the question is raised: What happens to um, you know where, where's that gold going to come from? And and you know we've noted before it can only come from really three places as a practical matter. It can come from the UK, it can come from the US, or it can come from India. And the Indians are buying, not selling, so it's not going to come from India. And so when you talk about you know what does this mean for the for the peg uh, to the the yuan peg to the dollar. To us, there's this very elegant um, setup where effectively um, the more offshore, you know, in theory, the way the system works, um, if, if, if you're China and you begin paying for a lot more stuff in yuan, um, what's going to happen is that it's actually a very bullish development for your currency. But think about the flow impacts. You're going to be exporting a lot more yuan, and there's not really a big bid for for yuan offshore. There's not a lot of out, off, off, out, offshore debt in yuan outstanding, uh, and so you're going to be increasing supply of yuan, not a lot of demand for yuan. At the same time, you're going to be replacing a lot of dollars uh, on the margin, and there is a lot of dollar demand offshore because there's a lot of dollar debt outstanding, and so you're going to be whittling down dollar supplies. Uh, against a very persistent, consistent demand for those dollars. And so perversely or ironically, when the yuan begins to gain share against the dollar uh, in offshore markets, what's going to happen is the yuan will fall sharply against the dollar, uh, not rise. Uh, And so the dollar, as, as China starts to make progress on this, the dollar should really start running like a scalded cat. Now, what's really interesting is in the third quarter, 14, China, remember, China opened the gold window at SGEI. The Russians said, hey, we want to start pricing oil in yuan. And the dollar takes off like a scalded cat. And the yuan begins falling and China burns down FX reserves. And, you know, there is this, you know, I think narrative that, you know, this was all a, you know, China playing defense. And I think there was element of them playing defense, but I think they were playing defense within a very offensive move, which is moving away from purely dollar pricing of their commodity imports. Uh, and so um, when you look at that dynamic, that's a dynamic they have to manage. And so let's go back to gold now. Um, 
and why I say it's so elegant the way they're handling it, which is to say, at first, as yuan balances grow, it's going to put downward pressure on the yuan against the dollar, and that creates a set of problems for them. However, past some tipping point, particularly once they get more gold uh, exchanges up and running, now those yuan, if those yuan are exchanged for gold, um, uh, even on the margin, uh, given the size of Chinese trade, that in turn takes this downward pressure on yuan and immediately redirects it right back at the dollar. Because remember, China's not losing any gold from mainland China. And so what you're going to have to do is the U.S. and the U.K. are going to have to supply gold to help the Chinese internationalize the yuan effectively is how the flows end up working. And so that yuan pressure begins to be reflected on pressure on uh, gold exchanges in London and New York. And we've clearly seen over the last four or five years, um, you know, whether you look at, you know, the, the, the registered owners per or owners per registered ounce on COMEX rose markedly beginning in 2013. Um, you saw, you know, a headline in the, or the article in the Financial Times last year about this time that there was so much gold uh, being exported from the UK that it was actually affecting aggregate trade statistics and it was all going to China and the UK has no gold mines. So it all had to be dishoarding of, of London gold. Um, and so you can see gold is being used as a sort of um, defense metric um, by the Chinese, a defense offense almost at the same time where as offshore yuan balances grow to the extent they are reverted into uh, gold, are exchanged in gold, but that gold can only come from the U.S. and U.K., um, you know, you're putting pressure on these these U.S.-U.K. gold exchanges, uh, and that ultimately reverberates back to the dollar, and I think ultimately may speak to how we, you know, they sort of uh, slowly back away from this this yuan dollar peg. So I apologize, that was sort of a long one to sort of talk through, but I, I think it was important to touch. No, no, it's, it's very important. And so, so let's talk um – about the Shanghai oil contract, because this is something that uh, they've been talking about for years now, and it's been postponed a bunch of times. And most people kind of ignored it and said, well, like a lot of the other commodities contracts that have been opened in other countries around the world, this is going to be um, you know, a damp squib. Uh, but when the, the oil contract finally launched last week, um, or a couple of weeks ago rather, it surprised a lot of people with the amount of volume that went through. There was more volume that went through in Brent crude. Now, now was that a statement uh, at the opening to try and legitimize the contract? Uh, and, and what does that imply, the volume that went through? And also, if you could, Luke, just explain why it's important for people to understand that under this oil contract, the yuan is convertible. Yeah, so I think it's the, the, the oil contract is the first – uh, commodity contract in China that foreigners can participate in. And as I've read it and had it explained to me, um, it is if, if profits in the contract are fully convertible into other currencies. So you can, you know, you can take yuan back out or convert them directly into other currencies through that contract and, and get your money back out, which, which is unique. Um, that I think speaks to, you know, I, I think Grant, your point that, you know, were they, were they putting on a show for the launch of the contract? I think inevitably you got to believe that that's the case, um, you know, uh, to some degree. 
that said, when you look at who participated, um, you know, consensus from what I was able to gather was that this would be sort of, you know, Chinese grandmothers and, you know, you know, whipping, whipping volume around, <laughs> you know, who showed up was Trafigura, uh, Glencore, Mercuria. Um, you know, there was an, a, a quote unquote, West unnamed Western oil major, uh, laying off, uh, volume in, in Yuan. And, and so there's some big players who showed up and played in the first week. And, you know, in, you know, importantly, you know, the Chinese government has a lot of, I, I think it's, your point that was that volume forced, I think, is sort of has two sides of that coin. Um, do I think at some level they wanted to make a good show of it? I have no doubt they did. On the other hand, China is now the world's biggest oil importer. You know, we did research, uh, one of our reports a couple of weeks ago, the highlighted that China has uh, either outright yuan pricing, uh, yuan swaps, oil uh, or, or excuse me, loan deals or big infrastructure projects that they're joint ventured with with oil exporters who were responsible uh, for 96% of oil net exports globally. And so the other side of that, oh, well, that's just Chinese, China forcing that volume. Well, okay, say it is. <laughs> Why is that going to change? <laughs> they're they're, right. the, they're right. the line in the room. I mean, this is something it's fascinating to me to watch, you know, a lot of the Western analysis on this sort of poo-poo this contract and say, well, they're just, you know, they're just sort of, you know, uh, throwing their weight around. And to me, that's exactly the point. Like that's, that's, that's capitalism. You know, you're the biggest guy you're going to get, you know, you're going to get your own, you know, you're, you're going to get treated special. And so, um, I think that's what we saw early on with that contract. We'll see how it develops. What I think is really important in terms of being convertible, um, is, is when you go back to that current account calculus for China, right? So for China, if I'm the PBOC, the absolute worst case for me, you know, as I look at, you know, China runs a current account surplus. The worst case for me is that, um, you know, my oil bill, the price of oil goes up for me. I have to have dollars. Um, I'm importing more oil because my economy is growing. My current account surplus moves into current account deficit. Now, all of a sudden, I'm bleeding down FX reserves. I'm running a deficit. And I got to do one of two things. I either have to slow my economy um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, reduce my oil imports, which is not a good thing. They've got to keep growing. Or uh, I have to devalue my currency uh, to slow the rate at which I'm losing FX reserves. That's not a good thing. And so they sort of have two bad options. What this contract really accelerates them is it gives them a third good option, which is um, if I'm pricing oil in yuan – and there is, by definition, I'm also pricing gold in yuan. Um, there is, by definition, a relationship between those two, um, uh, and we've called that the gold-oil ratio. Um, if ch China, if if they get into this situation we just described, where their current account surplus begins to move towards a deficit because their oil bill is rising. Um, now, all of a sudden, I can go, uh, you know, theoretically, I can go to Russia, Iran, Venezuela, et cetera, and I can uh, say, hey, instead of transacting at 20 barrels an ounce, let's transact at 30 barrels per ounce of gold or, or 50 or that's that'll be sort of a, a you know, sort of the, the, the ratio that we, the PBOC, will maintain in our markets. Um, and again, this is, you know, something that is, is theoretically, uh, you know not all that different than the Fed 
sort of saying, okay, hey, we're going to keep rates here or there. Um, it would just be a, a different type of open market operation where you're managing a, a gold to oil ratio and having this contract there uh, increases their flexibility to do that. But what that would then do would uh, allow China to reduce their oil bill uh, even though the uh, volume of oil was still rising, it gives it gives the PBOC complete control over the oil and commod- eventually all commodity part of their um, of their import bill, which in turn gives the PBOC tremendous control over the current account, uh, which in turn begins to really take you know the the current account driven Chinese yuan depreciation scenario that you know the number of people have talked about off the table. Um, you know, that's really driven by IMF FX reserve adequacy math. And suddenly it, it ties back to that point. The reason the U.S. can have 0.6% of GDP in FX reserves is because we can print currency for oil and other critical com- uh, imports. And effectively, that's what that's what this begins moving, begins moving China towards. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because this whole story, gold sits right in the middle of it. And, and it's really, it's not the story but it is a, a potential um, important part of how this thing plays out. And, and you, as soon as you start talking about the gold component of this, uh, people's eyes either glaze over or they get really <laughs> excited depending on what their views of gold are. But, but you know, it, this fact that this stuff touches gold shouldn't really be a surprise to anybody because it, it's, you know, it, it, it's money and it's, it's the money around which everything else is kind of anchored. So you know it's inevitable, inevitable to me to, that this would have a link to gold in it, the same way as um, the Bretton Woods system had a link to gold in it. Oh, absolutely, and you know, and and people will say, well, why would Russia do that deal? Why would Russia take less gold for, uh, or, or what, you know, basically devalue their oil production in gold terms? And you look and you say, well, you know. There's geopolitical angle there, right? They get some away from the dollar. Uh, but the bigger one is that ultimately, if Russia has enough gold, uh, basically all they're doing is revaluing their gold reserves higher in terms of their biggest economic export, oil and, and, and fossil fuels. Um, and so uh, you see, you know, you, 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 they, they would actually be increasing you know, the oil value of their FX reserves by doing this. So it's a, it's sort of a win-win both ways. And people say, oh, well, that would never happen. Well, you know, in Europe, you know, there's, if you look back at U.S. archives from the 70s, um, uh, there were meetings um, in declassified documents that the European Union was looking at revaluing their gold significantly higher to help settle uh, their oil deficits with Arab nations and amongst each other, any any intra EC imbalances, and you know, it was interesting. I put a, a document linking that on Twitter, and you know, it was Kissinger and Volcker and sort of all the guys from the seventies, and you know, Harold Malmgren, you know, chimed on and goes, "Oh, I, I remember those negotiations well." <laughs> so you know, that happened in the seventies. More recently, there's a great article uh, in the Wall Street Journal from early 2014 called "Iran Iran's Golden Loophole." And it's fascinating because at that point we already had the sanctions on Iran, and um, the article says the loophole has been that effectively uh, uh, Tehran had been able to uh, move $100 billion worth of oil uh, for gold through Turkey. And, and then, then they also added other considerations. And you kind of go, $100 billion worth of oil for gold? 
And you do the math, and annual production of gold is, uh, call it 3,000 tons, maybe a little less. And at current prices, that's uh, $120 billion. And so <laughs> you quickly come to this conclusion that um, they were doing a deal and not at 15 barrels or 20 barrels an ounce, uh, whatever COMEX was saying it was. They, they had to have been doing you know, doing it at a second tier market, um, uh, which is interesting because, you know, by 2015, um, you had both President Obama and Secretary Kerry within a week of each other say, if we don't agree to the Iran nuclear deal, the dollar's reserve currency status is at risk. And you kind of scratch your head and go, you know, what could possibly, what does that have to do with the Iran nuclear deal? And I, I, I think what it has to possibly do with is, you know, Iran had found people willing to do deals in gold for oil at some secondary level um, that uh, um, that was working. If you just had to guess the percentage chance of actually oil being being traded in yuan rather than dollars in, in many countries in the world, say in the next 10, 20 years, I mean, do, do you really see this as a big shift that's hap- that could actually happen and China would just uh, provide the right incentives or actually, you know, stabilize and change their currency system to to make that happen? Or or is this something that will continue to just happen in in a couple countries and in a few uh, unusual trading situations? It's a great question. I think it's a very important question. uh, I don't think this is a, you know, it's interesting. Anytime you start talking about the dollar and its reserve status, something I've noticed as I interact with, with some people is, it's very black, and the, the 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 conversation immediately goes very black and white. It almost becomes like a, a religion or politics discussion, and and I don't think it's black or white at all. I think it's I think it's shades of gray, which is to say, I think the yuan is going to grab some share of the market. I think ultimately what it moves towards is, you know, sort of this regional reserve situation based on trade realities, right? If you're trading a lot with China and you got a lot of yuan. You may you you may buy more than average in yuan. If you're trading a lot with the Americans and you got a lot of dollars as a result, you know, you're probably not gonna you know uh, you know you're not gonna uh, um, uh, you're not gonna buy a lot of oil in yuan. And so what you probably end up with is sort of the regional you know where you know regional reserves with the yuan, the euro, the dollar uh, in terms of pricing this. Now, you know, in terms of oil market pricing, the, the where this becomes a problem, and this to me is a link that most people are really, really missing, where this becomes a problem is in the context of the U.S. dollar's reserve status and in the context particularly of the U.S. fiscal situation. Um, when you look at the U.S. fiscal situation, just very modest movements away from the dollar will re- result in very modest reductions in needs for the world to stockpile dollars. And that is coming at a time uh, when the U.S.'s uh, deficits are accelerating markedly, you know, particularly the entitlements, um, but also some of the stuff you know that, that President Trump has put in place. So you're having a situation where you may whittle away dollar demand a little bit on the margin as a result of this contract. But, you know, as we saw in, you know, it's very reminiscent to me of 2005 or 2006. I remember, okay, oil price or excuse me, home prices are falling now. That wasn't supposed to be able to happen. Um, But so what? There's only 60 billion of subprime. It was like, well, it's 80 billion of subprime. Well, it's 100 billion of subprime, but it's only 100 billion of subprime. And, you know, the financial system is big and big and big. Well, 
until you got to AIG. And if AIG would have gone the whole thing, that $100 billion would have taken down everything. And there's, there's an element of leverage to this uh, through the U.S. fiscal situation that, that is very, very misunderstood, which is to say um, U.S. deficits are growing. I think our, our federal debt's been growing, you know, a trillion to a trillion two a year for six years. And uh, to the extent that this uh, oil, you know, other currency oil takes place, you know, remember, China has 26% of FX reserves, uh, 26% of GDP in FX reserves, U.S. is 06 If China just stops buying treasuries or just stops buying them fast enough, let alone stops buying them or, God forbid, sells them, the U.S. has to find new buyers for this. And when I say China, I'm talking about global central banks broadly, uh, of which China is a big part. And so suddenly the U.S. has to go from you know, global central banks lending it money, which is really nice because global central banks have infinite balance sheets and they don't mark the market on their, on their holdings, to having to be financed by the global private sector. And the global private sector has a finite balance sheet and it does mark the market. And so it is a, a much less, uh, a much more finicky creditor uh, from the United States government's eyes. And so to me, the real leverage of the story to watch is less – you know, what sh- percent share will the yuan contract ultimately get and how quickly will it get it? The real leverage point is um, who's going to finance the U.S. government um, uh, in a uh, non-crowding out way. And what I say by that is that 3Q14 time horizon when SGEI opened, the gold window reopened, um, the dollar took off, LIBOR began rising. Uh, there was an offshore dollar shortage. And uh, – LIBOR to me is the gauge which tells you, um, you know, ultimately it's it's a gauge of the mismatch between offshore dollar supplies and dollar demand. Um, the fact that um, we keep emitting these dollars and they're being financed by the global private sector um, is squeezing out uh, the offshore dollar markets. And at some point, uh, that LIBOR rate is going to hit some level that is problematic. And that, to me, when you talk about all of this and it's, you know, this framework, the real leverage point in all this where people say, so what on this oil contract? It's not so what. It's you're, because you're ultimately talking about the oil contract is a big catalyst to the world, the global public sector not needing to fund the U.S. government anymore at a time the U.S. government needs public sector funding more than it ever has. So, you know, look, this, this, this story is, um, you know, it's, it's playing out around us right now. And, and look, I think it's an important story. You think it's an important story. Plenty of people disagree with this, and that's fine. You know, none of us really know the future. We're all trying to figure this thing out. But there's a series of dots here that, uh, you know, you've joined together very, very well. And, and I certainly um, think there is something to this. But for people out there listening who uh, want to find out more about what you do and, and, and how you think about this stuff and perhaps read some of the stuff you've written on it, which is, which is excellent, uh, just let them know how they can get in touch with you. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, we've, uh, we're, uh, of course, on the, on the web, uh, dot com, and there's a couple samples there and got a pretty active Twitter feed, at Luke Groman, G-R-O-M-E-N. Yeah, and you you are very good at jumping in those those Twitter conversations. Sometimes <laughs> I just sit shaking my head watching them all. You know, it, look this this whole thing. It's a fascinating story, and um, you know, people get very dogmatic about it. But but I think the important thing for everybody to understand whether whether you know they, they listen to this and it and it rings a bell as it has done with me, or they listen to it and think no, this is way off. You know, I just don't get it. This is a big shift that people 
need to at least do the thinking uh, and decide whether they think it's important. Because um, if, if it is important, it's a sea change. And if it isn't, hey, it isn't. But uh, look, look, thanks so much for joining us. It, it's a fascinating story. And um, I know I'm going to be bugging the hell out of you to, to keep me uh, alongside it as it develops. So thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It was an absolute blast, as always. Yeah, so that, that was a fascinating interview. And, and in case it's not clear, I, I did not know much about the topic ahead of time. So I, I learned a tremendous deal from Luke. It's interesting because the looking at it, at it from that game theory perspective that, that he mentioned a couple times, you know, it does seem like since the U.S. does produce uh, as much oil as, as it would need to use, you know, or at least it could, it seems like China has a lot more to, to gain than the U.S. has to lose by trading its oil based on the yuan rather than on the dollar. So it would make sense that China would offer enough incentives and, and uh, make enough political allies to, to at least make that happen in a partial sense. I think that's an important point, Alex. You know, uh, the, the, the funny thing is, like, like a lot of things you talk about in finance, as soon as you throw the word gold into the mix, you create um, a lot more volatility around any conversation. You know, so I, I, I try and remove gold from this and just talk about the, the game theory aspect of it, the, the, the supply and demand dynamics. Um, and, and it all makes an awful lot of sense to me. I, I, think, I, think, I think gold belongs in the conversation, but, it, it, but it's such a lightning rod. Uh, and, and inevitably, when you talk about this stuff and, and you're talking about the size of um, entitlement spending, it, it, it ultimately comes around to a gold price. You know, wh- wh- what does the gold price look like in, in this environment? And, and you can make a case for the gold price being significantly higher. And as soon as you do that, it becomes, oh, this is one of those, you know, gold to a million dollars, guys. And, and it's not that to me at all. You know, I, I, again, to make the point um, once more, this is, this is all speculating about an unknowable future and trying to join the dots together and figure out a plausible way this might play out. Um, and, and to me, the way Luke's connected the dots, I find incredibly plausible. And uh, I think it's, it's a story that everybody should be on top of. Um, by all means, make up your own minds how important you think it is. But I think this is something that's happening. It, it is potentially a massive paradigm shift and so i think it behooves everybody to kind of try and understand it and then either write it off or follow it um as you decide but uh, i'm grateful to luke for coming on and spending the time to run us through it that concludes another episode of adventures in finance that's 61 in the books now uh, but before we go uh legal disclaimer anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice these are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors so please everybody do your fundamental research chart your technicals place your stops and always always trade responsibly now we will be back once again next week when we will be talking about drum roll please tesla now we've done this before we know how this goes uh it's going to be tough to find any bulls at the moment given what's happening with the stock and the markets but please send us an email um, if you would like to uh, take part in the podcast uh, as a bull, because I've got no shortage of bears lining up to, to offer their opinions, and it would be good to have a, a little credible balance to that. So send us an email uh, at podcast at realvision.com. Uh, and for that matter, anything, Tesla bulls or not, if you have an interesting question, then we'd love to hear from you. So, so do send us an email there or leave us a voice note. Yeah, that's also a good place to ask what the gold price will do in this uh, environment. 
Uh, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe on iTunes and even leave a review. Yes, we like those reviews. Leave a review. We love them. We can't live without them. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. We're hanging out on Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. Yes, we're still there, lurking around in the corners. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. Follow me at Aces Rose. And you can follow me at AIF James. That's it from us, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.